Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to Far-Fetched Fables, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are, wherever you're listening from. This is Farfetch Fables. Welcome to show number 41. This week we're going to run three relatively short stories for your consideration, a fantasy triple header, if you will. And we've decided to run the gambit, starting with a bit of a tall tale by Reese Hughes called Caster on Troubled Waters. Reese Hughes was born in 1966 and began writing from an early age. His first short story was published in 1991, and his first book, the now legendary Worming the Harpy, followed four years later. Since then, he has published more than 30 books, and his work has been translated into 10 languages, and he is currently one of the most prolific and successful authors in Wales. Mostly known for absurdist work, his range in fact encompasses styles as diverse as gothic, experimental, science fiction, magical realism, fantasy, and realism. His main ambition is to complete a grand sequence of exactly 1,000 linked short stories, a project he's been working on for more than two decades. Each story is a standalone piece, as well as a cog in the grand machine. He is finally three-quarters of the way through this opus. His blog can be found at resaurus.blogspot.co.uk, and as always, that link will be in our show notes. Our narrator for this story is Alex Winley. His anthology of shock, comedic, tragic stories, The Decapophilatic, is available now, and his science fiction novel, Border, is currently in editing. A longtime listener of our parent podcast, Starship Sofa, he has finally gotten up the courage to narrate. He lives in Fulburn, England, in a cottage that consumes bulbs of unusual wattage. And now, let me present our first story, Caster on Trouble Waters, by Reese Hughes, narrated by Alex Winley. He's almost 50 years of age, Caster Jenkins is, which for a stereotypical Welshman must be reckoned venerable, if not ancient. Not that he takes kindly to being considered a stereotype. He likes to point out that real Welshmen don't live exclusively on a diet of beer and chips, nor do they avoid exercise, work and responsibility every waking minute of the day. 
The fact he does those things is a mark of his uniqueness, and it's just a coincidence that the cliché and his individualism are the same. But in fact, there's some dispute about his true age, and it's possible he might be twice as old as he says, for something incredible happened one day that confused the issue. He was sitting in his favourite pub with his best friends, Paddy Deluxe and Frothing Harris, getting ready to play cards and win heavily, as always, when a disagreement about the integrity of past games threatened to spoil the evening. Paddy started it with a complaint about the physical condition of Castor's cards. His argument ran as follows. The state of your deck is abysmal, truly it is, and you might as well be playing with marked cards. For all the different beer stains on the backs, not to mention chip-fat drippings, surely form patterns recognisable to you and not to us, and so allow you to know what's coming next. In other words, to cheat, added Frothing Harris. Castor Jenkins announced that he resented the accusation. But his friends continued to grumble, and the first gained momentum and became an unbreakable refusal to play even a single round unless they used the brand new pack, fresh and unopened, that Paddy had thoughtfully brought with him. And there was talk of reimbursement for previous losses, and hints of compensation on top of that, and finally Castor was forced to back down and agree that the beer and chip stains might be considered to be arranged in a suspicious manner. They played with the new pack, and Castor lost every game, and he soon found himself owing a sum in the region of a hundred pounds to both of them. Unable to settle up on the spot, he offered to go out and find a cash machine and return with the money as quickly as possible. His friends nodded. That's a reasonable suggestion, they said. I'll be back in ten minutes, Castor declared. He stood and walked out, and they watched him with triumph in their eyes, but it was the sort of triumph that a fish feels when it bites a worm on the hook, and so their eyes glittered sickly, waiting to see what trick was in store, for they couldn't imagine Castor would do exactly what he promised without some effort at regaining the upper hand. Ten minutes passed, but he didn't appear. An attempt to contact him on his mobile phone proved futile. Paddy rubbed his nose and Harris scratched his chin, but not in that order. An hour later, Castor returned and he was breathing hard, and he staggered around the room before returning to his place at the table, and sitting down, still panting and mumbling to himself in a language that was either Spanish or Arabic, Paddy and Harris couldn't agree on that, before shuddering and licking his lips and tugging at his earlobes. They gazed at him in silence, and he slowly regained his composure and addressed them directly. He said, You won't believe what has just happened to me. Tell us, they replied. Very well, he said slowly. But I need a drink to settle my nerves first. You don't mind if I take a sip of your beer? That's better. And yours as well? Sure. A gulp isn't the same as a sip, but listen carefully. I was kidnapped. I know it sounds ridiculous, but it's true nonetheless. Shortly after I left you, while walking along the Esplanade, I noticed a strange vessel anchored offshore, an old-fashioned galleon. Then a boat was lowered from it and began rowing closer, and I soon realised there was something unusual about it. How unusual? asked Paddy. Castor lowered his voice to a whisper. It was crewed by men dressed like pirates. 
with black breeches and billowing white shirts, spotted scarves tied around their heads, eyes patches, and bristling beards. Many waved cutlasses in the air or carried knives between their teeth, and I imagined that a film was being made, even though I couldn't see a director or any cameras. I wanted to stay and watch, but my first duty was to get your money, and so I hurried onwards. Very considerate of you, observed Harris. Caster nodded. I reached the cash machine, inserted my card, punched in my number, and withdrew a few crisp notes. But as soon as the money was in my hand, I felt myself being lifted up and carried away. A mob of howling ruffians filled the street. They took the cash machine as well, blowing it out of the wall with gunpowder. That explosion disordered my senses, I can tell you. I was stunned. I never properly realised what was going on until it was too late. Everywhere there was chaos, broken bottles on the road, the overpowering smell of rum. When the cloud of smoke cleared, I saw that they had bundled me aboard the boat. It was at this point I understood these men were not actors, but real pirates. As the history books tell us, pirates don't just attack other ships. They also raid coastal towns, looting and sacking. Porthcrawl is a coastal town and ripe for such unwanted attentions. These pirates had obviously decided to make a rapid strike, grabbing what they could and departing before the police arrived. I imagine they were disappointed with their haul. Just one cash machine and a single captive, namely myself. Not much of a profit there, agreed Paddy and Harris. True, sighed Castor, but perhaps they needed practice. Anyway, I was taken to the galleon and locked inside a narrow cell where I lay in mouldy darkness. My mind filled with thoughts of what pirates traditionally do to prisoners, but after calming down I stopped believing I was destined to walk the plank. If they wanted me dead, they would have saved a lot of effort by cutting my throat at the cash machine. So it grew increasingly likely they intended to sell me into slavery. I felt terrible, knowing that you were sitting here waiting for your money, but I had no way of getting a message to you. The days passed slowly and I was sick during a horrid storm, and they gave me nothing to eat and drink but bread and water. When I asked for proper nourishment, they laughed in a piratical fashion, and treated all my other requests with similar contempt. I began to rot in that prison, but one morning a man more distinguished than the others opened the door and let me out. He was Captain Ribs, he announced, the leader of the pirates, and he had a proposal for me. He led me to his cabin and asked me to sit down and offered the chips and beer I craved. And when I was full, he scrutinised me closely and said, We're a man short, and to run the ship with maximum efficiency I need to find a replacement. You're the only candidate for the position, and so I want to offer you the job. If you don't want it, and would prefer the life of a slave in the hellish butter mines of Kaupu, I'll understand. I need to think about it. What exactly is the job? Look out. Our last lookout fell to his death last night, just like his predecessor and the lookout before him, not to mention the lookout before him, and so on. Without a lookout, we don't know where we're going. We won't recognise it when we get there. So it's a very important post, carrying a great deal of responsibility. I was about to declare that I wanted nothing to do with responsibility of any kind, but then it occurred to me that as a member of the ship's crew I stood a better chance of escaping and paying you the money I owed than if I ended up working in the butter mines of Kaupu. So I accepted. Captain Ribs was delighted and explained my new duties. 
I had to climb the tallest mast of the crow's nest and call down whenever I saw anything noteworthy. He gave me a comprehensive list of things considered noteworthy, and it consisted of the following. Land, storms, whirlpools, treasure ships, rival pirates, reefs, cannibals, whales, giant squid, mermaids, lifeboats, seductive cloud formations, alterations in the shape, colour or tensile strength of the horizon line. My job began immediately, and I climbed the rigging with a queasy stomach. Higher and higher I went. My fingers rubbed raw on the rough cords, my feet slipping, the sweat pouring off my brow in droplets as thick and yellow as chip oil, but determined to reach the top without admitting defeat. I got there safely, in case you're wondering. The crow's nest was hardly bigger or more secure than a large wok, with slippery sides and the precariousness of my position generated little or no contentment in my heart. I wondered how long it would be before I too fell to my doom. Fortunately, the sea was calm at this particular time, and I was able to discharge my duties to a satisfactory degree. Whenever I spied an object on the surface of the ocean, I checked the list to see if it merited a shout. Large floating log did not. But large floating log with a man sitting on it did. And so it went. Paddy interrupted the story by asking, How did you sleep? Badly, is the honest answer, said Castor but I was able to curl myself into a ball tight enough to fit the crow's nest. It was cold at night, even in the tropics. Maybe because I was up so high. Don't ask how food and drink was delivered to me. If you do that, I'll also have to explain how I relieved myself. While my fellow pirates far below gorged themselves on watermelon and toast spread with butter from cow poo, and drank rum and lime juice, I went largely without... There were occasions when I was allowed to descend. Each time we docked a port, I had permission to go ashore with the rest of the crew. How many ports did you visit? wondered Harris. Too many to remember. We sailed around the world several times and stopped off in Bombay, Rangoon, Surabaya, Shanghai, Osaka, Lima, Montevideo, Luanda, and the strange seaside towns that dot the coasts of Lowest Bow, Zing, and the mediocre Utopia among others. Once we even docked at Tenby in Wales, and I saw a chance to jump ship and make my way back to Porthcawl on a bus with a change at Swansea, but Captain Ribs detained me, and so opportunity was lost. He had something important to say, and I had no choice but to let him say it. Look here, Master Jenkins, he began. Of all the lookouts I've ever employed, you are by far the best. You always shout out at the earliest moment. You never make mistakes, and you haven't yet fallen to your death. You're so perfect, I wish I could keep you forever. Promise me that if you ever marry and have a son, you'll name him after yourself and bring him up to be exactly like you are in every way. That's how highly I regard you. I hope your friends appreciate you. That they do, I assured him. And so I remained in the service of Captain Ribs, and my work got harder rather than easier. He was driven by some unspecified urge, a quest he was unable to articulate even to himself, and I could never work out if his ultimate goal was a distant country, a hoard of treasure, international notoriety, or some way of forgetting his past. Whatever it was that motivated him also drew us along in his spiritual wake, as it were. 
until we became like sacrificial victims who desire our own demise. I recall with a shiver certain adventures in abandoned temples on overgrown islands, engagements with intelligent apes armed with blowpipes, races against ghost ships. We committed our fair share of atrocities. We were pirates. Never forget that. And I feel terrible shame at some of the things we did. We pillaged the coastal settlements of a dozen nations. Once we discovered the factory where calendars are made, there's only one in the world, and sabotaged the delicate machinery by throwing a spanner into the works. Well, a spatula, actually. Another time, we sailed the wrong way up a river during a charity raft race, scattering the entrance like the smug middle-class skittles they were. It was a violent career, and I risked a horrid injury every single working day. On one occasion, we sailed up a narrow channel between two obstacles that struck terror into my heart. The first was a vast iceberg. The second was a smoking volcano newly arisen from the sea. The waters of the channel churned awfully, and our vessel swayed from side to side, almost capsizing, and I felt like the weight at the end of a metronome. As we passed the crater of a volcano, the top of the mast and the crow's nest dipped into the sulphurous flames. Contact lasted only an instant, but it was long enough for my clothes to burst into fire. Fortunately, the mast then dipped the other way and quenched me on the surface of the iceberg with a gigantic hiss. Such extreme occurrences were quite commonplace. This life might have gone on forever, or at least until Captain Ribs led us to our deaths. But one cloudy morning, I had an encounter that changed everything. The clouds were thick, but very low, practically resting on the surface of the sea. But the top of my mast protruded above them. I was able to look out across a vast, fluffy expanse, and the effect was very soothing. To my astonishment, I noticed a man standing on the clouds far away. But this was just an optical illusion. As he approached, it became obvious he was a lookout like me balanced in a crow's nest at the top of a tall mast. We waved to each other. The situation was very dreamy. We seemed to float like angels. The ships below us completely forgotten, and the serenity of the scene distracted us from performing our duties. Suddenly, I realized we were on a collision course. It was too late to shout down a warning. The snapping of wood and popping of nails was background music to my prolonged descent into the ocean was flung out of my nest far into the mass of clouds and threw them into the cold, salty water. I thrashed and gasped, my senses reeling, my eyes stinging, and by sheer luck my flailing hands grasped the barrel that had floated free from one of the holds. I hauled myself up, sat astride it, and found myself blinking into the face of a beautiful woman. We were the only survivors, and she permitted me to share her barrel in return for keeping her company. I entertained her as best I could by telling her strange but true tales until we were cast ashore on a desert island. "'What tales did you choose?' asked Paddy Deluxe. Caster Jenkins sniffed. "'Can't rightly recall. I think that my encounter with the king of the bicycle centaurs was one. I mended his puncture in return for my life, as it happened. Anyway, we lived on the desert island, the woman and I, in a sort of paradisal harmony, eating fruit.' walking on the beach at night and laughing at the stars. And for some reason she found the constellations funny, especially Jim and I and Cassiopeia. Who knows why? 
Her name was Charlotte Gallon, and she was the captain of the other ship, also a pirate vessel. We became intimate, and our first child was born less than a year after our shipwreck. I kept my promise to Captain Ribs, and named the boy Castor. Sometimes the tide brought useful objects to us. Flotsam and jetsam included tennis rackets, old shoes, waterlogged books, rusty batteries, broken stools and a fondue set. Only one empty bottle was ever washed up on our sands, oddly enough, and only one pencil. I tore one of the blank pages out of one of the books, dried it in the sun and composed a message on it. This was the only chance at contacting the outside world, but instead of writing help and appealing for rescue, I decided to contact my best friends, Paddy Deluxe and Frothing Harris, because I respected them so much, and I did this even though Charlotte told me it was a waste. I held the bottle into the sea and watched it bob along. "'What did you write?' cried Frothing Harris. I merely repeated what Captain Ribs had said to me. I told my two friends how highly I valued them, went into detail about what superb fellows they were, and urged them to name their own sons after themselves, if they ever had any, and to bring them up to be exactly like their fathers. That message seemed more important to me than any request to be picked up by a passing ship, and delivered safely back into the comforting lap of civilization. We never received the bottle, said Paddy Deluxe. Yes, you did stated Castor. I assure you we didn't. No message at all. Castor pursed his lips. The ocean is wide, and one might think that messages in bottles just drift around forever, but in fact there's an organized system at work to ensure they reach the persons they're intended for. A secret place exists where every bottle with a message is kept until it can be properly delivered. I learned this from a fellow who interviewed me after I escaped the island. He calls himself the Postmodern Mariner, an investigative journalist who specialises in the mysteries and dramas of the sea. Anyway, to return to the point, my two best friends did receive my message, and they acted upon it too, which is how we are able to have this conversation right now. Confused, are you? Let me explain that I dwelled with Charlotte and my son on that island for years and years. An oil tanker eventually picked us up. I worked our passage back to the mainland, but I never returned to Wales. I married Charlotte and we lived in relative happiness, with only one argument, until I was accidentally killed by a thrown saucepan, which is how that argument ended. After my funeral, my son went on a touching quest. I had already told him everything, and he planned to seek out my two dear friends and settle my debts with them. He searched the pubs of Porthcall for a long time. Finally he entered the pub where that card game had taken place all those decades previously. And here I am. Yes, I'm not the first Caster Jenkins, but the second. His son, grown to the precise age my father was when he left to use the cash machine. Remember that I was brought up to exactly resemble him in every way. "'You are him!' blurted Paddy. "'You left an hour ago, not fifty years,' added Harris. Castor sadly shook his head. "'I have some sad news. "'Paddy Deluxe and Frothing Harris are dead and buried. "'They were your fathers, and they raised you in the way my message urged them to do, "'with the same names and identical thought processes. 
That's the reason for your identity confusion. It was my father who left this pub to obtain money for your fathers, but it is the son who returns to pay the sons. The time difference also explains why you'll find no evidence of a pirate raid when you walk home tonight. That incident happened a generation ago, and the damage has long since been repaired. Now, to more pressing matters. How much was owed in total? One hundred pounds, answered Paddy and Harris together. Would you like that sum in today's money? Of course, came the roar. Castor reached into his pocket and withdrew a single coin, a tarnished penny, which he slapped down on the table. There you go. That penny was in my father's possession during the original card game. Because of inflation over half a century, it's worth more than a hundred pounds in today's money. Paddy Deluxe and Frothing Harris were speechless. I'm glad everything is settled, said Castor. By the way, the machinery in the calendar factory was never fixed, and that wrong year has been printed on every calendar since. Curious, don't you think? Don't trust dates from now on, whatever you do. I'm off to the bar for a drink, and then we can toast our ancestors. Come now, my friends, restrain yourselves. Are we not gentlemen? Fighting over a penny is most undignified. So, do you buy it? Did Castor's father really raise his boy to be exactly like him in every way? And what of Patty Deluxe and Frothing Harris? Were they also just spitting images of their da? I suppose the spatula in the calendar works could explain some things. Well, whether you believe it or not, it was definitely a tall tale. For our next story, we're going to delve into the world of future fantasy. And really, what's more fantastic than creating whole virtual worlds and living a double life? Our next offering is from Paul Collins, Lure. Lure deals with adult subject matter and may not be suitable for all audiences, so if you have younger listeners with whom you like to share our tales, please give this one an advanced listen. Paul Collins has written more than 140 books and 140 short stories. He's best known for The Quinteris Chronicles, The Spell of Undoing is book number one in the new series, which he co-edits with Michael Pryor, The Jalendil Chronicles, The Earthborn Wars, and The World of Grim Trilogy in collaboration with Danny Willis. Paul's latest series is The Warlock's Child in collaboration with Sean McMullen. The Burning Sea is book number one. He is also the publisher at Ford Street Publishing. Paul has been shortlisted for many awards and won the Aurealis, William Athling, and the inaugural Peter McNamara Awards. He received the A. Bertram Chandler Award for Lifetime Achievement in Australian Science Fiction. He has black belts in both Jiu-Jitsu and Taekwondo. This experience can be seen in the Jellendale Chronicles and the Maximus Black Files. He can be found online at www.paulcollins.com.au and www. Quinteris.com and www.fordstreetpublishing.com. All three of those sites will be linked into the show notes. Our narrator for this story is Kim Mintz. With a background in theater and an English degree that didn't lead to teaching or full-time novel writing, Kim turned to the persuasive arts known as sales and heard multiple clients say, You have a great voice. I would listen to you all day. Finally, she decided to marry these skills together and enter the world of professional voice acting. Employing a wide range of voices and expressions in commercial and narrative work, 
She contributes to the financial, travel, and health insurance industries, utilizing clear, direct articulation. She is currently expanding her repertoire with audiobook passages by exhibiting a range of emotion, including warm, sultry, cheerful, sarcastic, and many others. She is also working on scripts with her writing partner for animated projects to which she hopes to give a voice. For more information, please visit her website at kimmintzvoiceactor.com. And again, that'll be in our show notes. And so, here is Kim Mintz reading Lure by Paul Collins. The metaverse had become a minefield. The dossier in my hands made me want to puke. I popped a dozen lewds, the kind that fool you into thinking everything's okay. The main question before me was whether or not it's permissible by law to kill an avatar, a digital manifestation, and if not, can perpetrators be tried for murder? Perhaps the pills unfogged my mind. I decided it was an indictable offense. I mentally ticked off key points leading to my conclusion. Legislation was passed after a lovelorn celeb called Elverat suicided because his toy girl avatar, blitzed by a beta virus, deconstructed block by digital block before his helpless eyes. Since then, an estimated 200 million avatars had died, and 20,000 creators with vitamin D deficiencies had self-destructed. The Bureau was called in, but so far, the FFC had come up with zilch. No body, no DNA. All they could do was interview witnesses and get their meat-space contact details. I studied the dossier for the fifteenth time since it had been dumped on my desk. How do you catch someone who can be someplace deep in Russia killing off avatars, someone whose digital creation left a bigger footprint on the real world than their meat-space makers did? Frankly, the whole thing gave me a headache. Not that I could talk. My own life was circling down the drain. Or is it the toilet? To make ends meet, I'd written three crime novels whose royalties made a slight dent in the rent and scored me seats at Sisters of Crime conferences. That's me, a sister of crime. Only the person I aspired to be was something else. Anuk Hellstrom, paper goddess, or just goddess, the kind that left you dripping. Rumor had it, she'd once sold her shopping list to InStyle Webzine. When her latest book appeared, the world stopped. And I adored her. We'd sat in rooms together, breathed the same air. Problem was, she didn't know I existed. Then one day, our feet touched under the table. Her stilettoed boot tapped mine as she shared thoughts with some A-list arsehole. I almost pulled my foot away, but didn't. The merest touch from the object of my obsession was like tantric sex. A week went by. I could think of nothing but that tapping on my foot, like some zit-faced adolescent. Make that stupid zit-faced adolescent. For Christ's sake, she was married. Had two kids. Happy, for all I knew. Like me. So I emailed her. I figured, what the heck? If she didn't reply, it didn't matter. I typed, deleted, typed some more, deleted some more. Started all over. Hey, Anuk. Just touching base. Putting together a crime anthology titled Dark Times and Dark Crimes. The Malaise of the Metaverse. If you're interested, what about meeting up the next time you're in town? Yours, Angel Heart. 
I had no intention of putting together such an anthology, and less hope of her wanting to be in it. But you don't catch a fish without bait. I clicked send, and a truckload of tension purged itself from my shoulders. And that's how it started. She replied the same day. Dear Angel, how lovely of you to think of me. I'm off to the London back in a week. I'll be in Melbourne the 25th to the 30th. Can we play catch-up then? A nook. Catch up. The word made me salivate. All over. I hit reply and pinned her down to date, time, place. Must be the detective in me. And what a week that was. Hey, back up and defrag. I'm talking the week before we met. Emails sizzled to and fro. Hey, Anuk, you'll never guess what happened last night at work. Detected an unauthorized data stream on one of the private medical channels we scan. Discovered some dude chatting up a girl in a singles bar, having answered an ad. Should have disconnected them and run a viral interloper. That's my job. But I'm on a bigger case right now, and the small stuff slips through. Anyway, I dialed for sensory input. And suddenly I was there, freeloading on the orgasmic ocean till they'd exhausted themselves. Bliss. So, what do you think? Am I perverted? She laughed, said my hard drive was in overdrive. I met her in a cafe she'd suggested. In meat space, not the metaverse, where most first dates usually happen. She was hidden at a corner table, camouflaged in shades and hat. She was line editing a manuscript. Don't know how you can work in here, I said, sitting down, moving straight into my agenda of getting her out of there. God was on my side for once. The hubbub of the cafe intensified. She wrapped her manicured, satin-tipped fingers around my hand. Electricity sizzled through me. What seems like chaos, she said, is actually keeping me in a necessary state. I go to cafes when I'm not focusing well and wham! Suddenly I'm concentrating ten times harder just to blank out all the noise. Maybe she'd rehearse that. No matter. I'd rehearsed mine, too. It's crowded in here, I said. And thank you, God, it was. How about we go someplace quieter? She looked at me, head tilting in, what, disbelief? The pressure on my hand loosened, and she took her hand away. My heart skipped a beat. Okay, she said. Where did you have in mind? I stood before she could change her mind. I'd already made a reservation at a nearby motel. If I'd been more confident, I'd have paid up front and got the discount. Oh, I have to pay for my cappuccino, she said, slightly confused. This was fast-tracking beyond her control. I'll get it. I paid at the counter while she gathered her stuff. The motel I'd found was only a block away. Within minutes, I was shutting the door of our room behind us. After that, well, I don't remember much for the next couple of hours. I do remember getting out of the shower and Anuk saying, I hope you're not leading me on. My nipples hardened as I stood there. I think that answered her question. I emailed her the moment I arrived back at the bureau. Within the hour, she had replied from her laptop. Hello, darling. I can still feel your hand and mouth prints on my skin. I think of seeing you and being in your arms and my thinking rationally stops right there. It's like my mind can't go past that moment. It's so necessary and so delicious. I truly can't wait to see you again. That thrilling, dangerous encounter scared me in retrospect, but it's an electric memory. 
I was so terrified of having crossed the Rubicon and started to babble, and you just took a couple of strides and kissed me, and all doubts went up in flame. I would love to be lying on your naked chest having this conversation, but I have to settle for a cyber connection. You have to tell me more about our skin being virtual to virtual. I'm such a Luddite. What a sweet diversion into a parallel world you are. A dangerous and intoxicating imagining. You once joked about being hardwired into me as if I'm a hot spot you can connect to. I hope you found it as electrifying and shocking as did I. Next time, yours, A X X. We saw one another every time she came to Melbourne over the next year. But the last time, we were almost caught. Mutual friends saw us go into her motel room. Nothing odd about that, really, but it unsettled a nook. If her husband found out, she had her boys to think about, all the standard doubts shared by adulterers the world over. To give up security for the unknown is a risk many don't wish to take. During this time, an epidemic was gaining momentum. Another 8,000 people worldwide suicided at the loss of their beloved avatars. Every major government in the world bankrolled investigations into catching the creator of the virus. Meanwhile, a shady character by the name of Jerry Anderson took avatar construction up another notch. His avatars aren't constructed. You are them. Wireless, too. Key in your biorhythm index to your reality space, and you're there. Actually, are you them, or are they you? They're better than human, for they never get tired and they cope with rejection. Configure yourself, your avatar, to be the woman or man that all others want. Then step into the metaverse and have fun. The inter-slick tech is nothing special to look at, just a neckband and headband of material that feels cold and wet when you put them on. I had a loan of a prototype set of series number two. No way could I ever be able to afford one on a detective inspector's wage. Jerry Anderson was a scumbag who mainly dealt in hardcore dildonics until I busted him a year before. He'd created virtual reality snuff flicks like Private Predator and embedded them with neural-induced hypnotherapy. A REM-triggered response that reacted with the player's amygdala, creating a neural feedback on the victim's brain like an immense emotional shock. Basically, it killed men who viewed his sordid flicks. To say actors committed bestial acts of depravity in those hack-and-slash flicks would be an understatement. I let Anderson off with a caution and a pat on the back. He was ridding the world of some choice acts. The killing stopped, and the Bureau tucked it all away in the cold case file. Anderson finally repaid me. Whoever was killing off avatars by the cartload was actually destroying his stock and trade. The virus was now sweeping city's avatars, and people were pulling out in droves. Hundreds of customers had opted out of reality, too, leading to scathing media attacks on space-scape productions. Anderson's business was going bust fast. He wanted the hacker caught and quick. Hence the prototype of his new series. Have fun, Angel, Jerry said with a smirk. He never did get it, the loser. I studied the package and set up a plan to bring down the Avatar Butcher, as the media had so garishly labeled him. I emailed Anuk with an idea to assuage her fears of our affair being made public. We'd set up in Jerry Anderson's frontier town. Lavago, already the world's largest alternative universe. Every brand name corporation from Nike through to Ford and Hooters had set up shop there. 
a metropolis of cash-driven nirvana. It was bandied about that the government now made more tax dollars from the metaverse than it did in meat space. And that's in spite of only receiving an estimated 10% of its dues. Would I be a cynic to say it was no wonder the governments wanted to stop this mass serial killer from continuing his or her spree? It was costing them big time. Using the new inner slicks, we'd simply be superior to our neighbors, but it only appear as though we were slumming rich dudes with huge graphics cards. With pseudonyms, we could live our parallel lives in anonymity and without fear of getting caught, providing we were careful. No, I didn't tell Anuk about my ulterior reason for continuing our affair in Lavago. I tried to. I hinted of dark things beyond my control that might make her mad. I told her I'd never seen her seething, that it would be a sight to behold. Her reply marginally eased my conscience. Hmm, me when I'm mad. Not a pretty sight, I suspect. It's only in books and movies that ugliness is supposed to look attractive. I hate feeling angry, and I hate feeling ugly and corroded. I can't imagine you will ever see that side of me, especially given that in a funny, not amusing, but quirky way our lives keep us apart from that. We don't have enough time to waste being mad. Any doubts will be seriously soothed, skin to skin, avatar to avatar. It makes no difference. I can't wait to be in your arms. I love you. A. X. X. And that's how the love nest came to be. I downloaded the software. The Bureau has the latest high-volume graphics channels on the market and terabytes of volatile memory to assimilate tactile stimulation inputs from one's partner. All the while, I marveled at Anderson's invention. He was set to become a demigod and bring down governments. No one need ever leave their house and interact with others again. A social inertia, if ever there was one. It'd be a lot safer in the sex sector. One never knows what you might pick up if more than electrons and photons flow between bodies. And Anderson's avatars were more human cells than avatar blocks, viral proof. I bought a wad of Andos, virtual currency that didn't exist in meat space. At the going rate, 200 Ando dollars equaled one real dollar. Anuk and I soon moved into a condo. Whenever she was touring, we stayed the night Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Vago, had breakfast, went to work. At nights, I'd call out the proverbial, Hi, honey, I'm home. It was a cry that became ritual. We rarely ventured out into the city, colorful though it was, with its frilly maned dragons with Bambi eyes. Gandalf inspired wizards, hissing vampires, and other loops. People who construct this virtual stuff are high on image quality, but low on imagination. Lavaga was just our little niche of the metaverse in which we were a happily married couple. Ostensibly, that is. Like the bug chasers of yesteryear before a cure for AIDS was discovered, I laid a nuck and me out like virtual bait. Things started unraveling when I found a blonde hair in the shower plug hole. My first thought was that it was a leftover from the previous tenants. But we'd been here a month now, and no way could that hair have remained stuck there. The detective in me took over briefly. A computer-generated DNA analysis on the follicle cells would tell me exactly which avatar the hair belonged to. I figured I was being paranoid and let it drop. You do things like that when you're in love. I didn't want to know if she was having an affair in our home. I knew I could never compete with her husband, but another woman? I sent her an email about this part of our relationship, and in passing said I hoped to have her hooked for a long time, to which she replied, Hooked and landed. As for Frank, he's a social cripple and puts everyone's back up, curdling them like month-old milk. There are many times when he feels like a big anvil around my neck, a dragging weight that slows me and makes everything heavier and harder. But I can't be bothered dwelling on it because he is never going to change and if I give him a blast about it, he'll sink into a morass of despair and go lie in his bed in funeral gloom. That might be worse than the slackness. See you tonight, my love. A. XXOO. Till I received that email, I'd kept the blonde hair in an airtight crime scene bag. I flushed it, bag and all, down the waste disposal. A week passed, and we continued on as before. We craved one another so much that my meat space partner became worried that I was working too much. Only by staying away from home could I visit a nook at our condo. For her part, she accepted more and more interstate and international bookings. We were pretty much in Lavago 24-7. But doubt rides hard when spurred. I searched our condo with a thoroughness best reserved for work. I found cherry blossom lipstick, a nook always wore plum vamp. I found more blonde hairs in her hairbrush, and the final proof of her adultery was on the phone. I hit redial. A man's voicemail answered, Hey, babe, Hans here. I didn't really listen to the message, but it was personal, as though only Anuk had his number. I know he said, Can't wait to catch up at the condo. It appeared she was having at least two affairs, one male, one female. Can someone be a double adulterer? Who was I to condemn a knock for cheating on me when both she and I were cheating on our partners? I wrestled with the conundrum. Were our avatars really cheating? If you watched a movie about adultery, did you partake of it yourself? If your avatar committed adultery, 
was that any worse for you than watching a movie about it. I put away men for years for enjoying the thrill of date rapes and murders and virtual realities, but it was the avatars doing the pillaging, not those enjoying the experience. Can adultery or rape even exist in the metaverse? Cyberbullying was the basis for today's harsh virtual legislations, but was the whole concept basically flawed? The foundation of everything I'd ever worked towards was suddenly cracking up. One part of me wanted to sell up, clear out, cut Anuk and her lovers out of the picture forever. Another part of me wanted my dream to last for however long it could, warts and all. Then I realized all this stuff wasn't about me. It was about the job. I was on stakeout duty. Business first, pleasure second. It wasn't until I had this figured out that I knew I was getting somewhere with the case. So I let it rest. Nonetheless, doubt gnawed away at me like a cancer. Anuk and I met in Meat Space during the Canberra Library Festival. Real-life sex is marginally better than the metaverse variety. You can't beat the smell of sex, and that is one sense the metaverse hasn't replicated yet. Smell. Anderson boasted to me that he was within a whisker of solving that problem. The moment I arrived back at the office, I went straight home. My suspicions that Anuk had been cheating on me were allayed after our weekend encounter, but a nagging thought drove me to give the condo a thorough check. I wasn't really surprised when I found a man's handkerchief with an H embroidered on it in the bed. It confirmed a suspicion that I had been harboring for a week. Back at the office, I phoned Anuk via secure line on her cell. It was late, but it was serious. I told her the whole sordid, duplicitous story. The next night, we had a row at the condo. So what do you call this? I demanded, throwing the lipstick, brush, and the handkerchief on the bed. And who's Hans? Angel, don't do this. I don't know how those things got here. They're not mine. Of course they're not. She looked about the room. Maybe Frank. But the words died on her mouth. No way could Frank navigate the metaverse. His skills lay strictly out at sea in his own dark space. Get out, Anuk, I said. I'm selling the place. She nodded slowly as though understanding. Okay, Angel, do what you have to. You always do. She snatched her bag and with head bowed she went to the door. She paused there, and I had hoped to see her turn around and at least acknowledge me. But she didn't. The door opened, and that was that. I put in two more visits before everything fell neatly into place. There was a knock on the door. It was the security guard. She was cutting-edge perfection in a uniform so neatly ironed the creases looked sharp as razor blades. An obsessive compulsive, then. A lean woman, she was quite attractive in a harsh way. Something predatory in her manner reminded me of a dozen psychos I'd put away over the years. I buzzed with adrenaline. Hi, she said. I'm Sheila. Security. I heard you guys arguing the other night. She winced with heartfelt commiseration. Saw the for sale sign up. She looked beyond me into the lounge room. Thought I'd pop over. Then, hopefully, you might need a shoulder to cry on. Like a cyber rebound, I smiled pitifully, lips trembling. If I could have squeezed out a tear, I would have. But I almost overplayed it. Sheila froze for a moment, 
like maybe a human one when confronted by another human so perfect that it couldn't be real, like meeting an angel in meat space. A professional, she recovered. From behind her back, she drew a bottle of Merlot. The best Ando dollars can buy. I stood back from the door. Sure, come in. When she entered, I locked the door. She turned, a smile touching the corners of her cherry blossom lips. Do you lock in all your female visitors? She had already scanned the condo for the firewall, the only obvious means by which our avatars had not succumbed to her virus. We shouldn't exist, yet we did. The virus had wiped out two-thirds of Lavago's populace in the last month. Now she needed to get up close and personal, decipher how to crack our immunity codes. An insatiable hunger I knew she could never quench, could never resist. If we were immune to the virus, she needed to know why to combat it. A challenge to match that of the Mac virus that knocked out three-quarters of the smug Mac users whose catch cry was once, I don't get viruses, I have a Mac. She unscrewed the top of the wine bottle, raised it in salute. Glasses? You should toast. You're a free man. Without saying a word, I undid the top five buttons on my blouse. I've been waiting for this moment for two whole days. The avatar's eyes dropped to my cleavage. So, you're a woman. Her smile evaporated as her earlier suspicion dawned large on her. What is this? Anuk used her key to open the door. Only now, her avatar was a live beauty dressed in a jet-black neoprene bodysuit. She'd needed to log in under a pseudonym to avoid the real Sheila's detection. Several Lavago officials fanned out from behind her and flanked Sheila. "'There's been some mistake,' Sheila began. "'Yours,' I said. "'Spreading viruses across the metaverse is an international offense.' I looked at my watch. "'A meaningless gesture here in the metaverse, of course, but old habits die hard. "'Right now, there's a bruiser called Burbank knocking on your door in meat space. "'I suggest you answer it before the FFC kicks it in.' You can't prove a thing, Sheila hissed. She started laughing, then morphed, losing layer upon layer of blocks till there was nothing there. A self-destruct virus. Clever, but not clever enough. Burbank would be reading the hacker his or her rights by now. I showed the officials to the door and thanked them with the bottle of Merlot. Then I held a knock at arm's distance. Why, if it isn't Kathy Willow from Willow's Game! On loan from Jerry, she undid the rest of my buttons and unclipped my bra with practiced ease. With fingertip softness, she pushed me backwards onto the bed. We need to talk about you setting us up, she said. But not right now, she purred. <laughs> I really like this story, but I have to confess, I was on the fence as to whether or not it's really fantasy. I mean, virtual worlds and alternate egos are generally the realm of cyberpunk, but why not fantasy? Creating worlds is a mainstay of fantasy writing, isn't it? I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Why not drop us your opinion on the Triple F website? Moving on to our final story, we present to you A Guided Tour in the Kingdom of the Dead by Richard Harland. Richard lives south of Sydney, near Wollongong, between green escarpments and golden beaches, with his wife Eileen and cat Habibi. He migrated to Australia at the age of 22, 
played folk rock music around Sydney, lectured for ten years in English at the University of Wollongong, then finally fulfilled his oldest dream in 1997 and became a full-time author of speculative fiction. His 17 novels have ranged across adult, YA, and children's, and across fantasy, science fiction, horror, and steampunk. He achieved international success with his steampunk fantasy, World Shaker, followed by the sequel, Liberator. His latest novel, Song of the Slums, is a gas lamp romance variant of steampunk, and is based on an alternate history premise. What if they'd invented rock and roll way back in the middle of the Victorian age? Richard's short stories have appeared in anthologies and magazines in Australia, the United States, Canada, and France. This story, A Guided Tour in the Kingdom of the Dead, was published in Jack Dan's Dreaming Again anthology and republished in David G. Hartwell's Year's Best Fantasy No. 9 from Tor. Richard has collected six Arialis Awards for novels and short stories, the A. Bertram Chandler Award in Australia, and the prestigious Tam Tam G. Boquin Award in France. His author website is at www.richardharlan.net. He has also put up for free a 145-page guide to writing speculative fiction at www.writingtips.com.au. The links will be in the show notes. The narrator for this story is Josh Roseman, not the trombonist, the other one, who lives in Georgia, the state, not the country. His writing has appeared in Asimov's Escape Pod, and the cross-genre anthology Fat Girls in a Strange Land. His fiction has been reprinted by Dune Seif Audio Fiction Magazine and Starship Sofa, and his voice has been heard on two Escape Artists and all five District of Wonders podcasts. He is a 2013 graduate of the Dow Toolbox Writing Workshop. When not writing, he mostly complains about the fact that he's not writing. Find Josh online at roseplusman.com or on Twitter at at listener42. Again, links in the show notes. So, here is our final offering. A Guided Tour in the Kingdom of the Dead by Richard Harlan. Read for us by Josh Roseman. The things I have seen, he croaked. You must hear everything. Everything. He went off in a fit of coughing, as dry as sandpaper. In the short time I knew him, Gordon Sturman could never utter more than a few sentences without that cough rising up in his throat. Yet he was desperate to tell his experiences to an English-speaking listener. I think he expected me to envy his tourist marbles. It was in the Mayfair Hotel, a budget hotel in the Zamalek area of Cairo. I was staying nearby at the New Star Hotel, one of the few American guests among flocks of Germans, French, and Italians. What brought me to Sturman's bedside was a misunderstanding over the doctor in front of my name. In fact, I'm a Ph.D., not a medico. As it turned out, Sturman's case was beyond medical assistance anyway. His room in the Mayfair was small, dark, and sparsely furnished. For the sake of his cough, wet towels had been hung over the window to generate a little humidity in the air. It amazed me that a middle-aged Australian could be so short of funds. Sturman was no young backpacker, and his expensive cameras were at odds with the poverty of his surroundings. "'It's him,' Sturman indicated the thin-faced Egyptian who had brought me to the room. "'Nagweeb the Inscrutable, I call him. My guide. He's got all my money.' He had a strange relationship with his guide half wary and half resentful. Waiting respectfully outside the open door, Naguib must have heard every word. He tempted me, 
Sturman went on. He told me about the kingdom of the dead. The what? Ha! Huh. Now his eyes glittered with a kind of triumph. Never heard of it, have you? You've come to Egypt to do the usual sights. I did them too, every last temple and statue and pyramid. I've been five weeks in Egypt. I hired Naguib as my personal guide, and we started in the north, then south to Abu Simbel, then down the Nile to Luxor. Twelve hundred photos I've taken. Not in the kingdom of the dead, though. Not allowed. Not possible. His cough overwhelmed him, and he buried his mouth in the pillow. Naguib came forward and gestured me away. For the first time I studied the Egyptian's face, the thin, fine lines of nose and eyebrows. When he turned to me on the landing outside, his voice was as calm as Sturman's was labored. He excites himself too much, sir. I'm not the kind of doctor he needs. You understand that, don't you? Yes, Dr. Weber, but I think he needs you, too. I'll come back, with a proper doctor. Perhaps I misinterpreted the motion Naguib made with his left hand. I'll pay the bill. You don't have to worry. I wondered how much money Naguib had managed to extract from Sturman. Did he feel somehow responsible for Sturman's sickness? Why else would he still be looking after him? He was no ordinary guide, that was certain. It took a great deal of searching to find a suitable Egyptian doctor, and a fair sum to persuade him to a bedside visit. I was beginning to regret my commitment, though I was still curious to hear more about the Kingdom of the Dead. The doctor's visit proved a complete waste of time. He could find no cause for the pain in Sturman's throat, or his feverish symptoms. The fever is the body's reaction to the throat, he said. And the throat? He shrugged and exchanged glances with Naguib. He prescribed some drugs, but it was obvious he didn't expect them to work. Sturman himself was less interested in a cure than in talking to me. He started up as soon as Naguib left to fill the prescription. The Valley of the Queens, Weber, he said, near Luxor. Have you been there? Only the Valley of the Kings. The Valley of the Queens is where the most amazing recent discoveries have been made. You've heard of the tomb of Nefertari? No. He swallowed and rolled his tongue around his mouth, trying to work up a little moisture. You should have. Best preserved tomb paintings in Egypt. Better than anything in the Valley of the Kings. Naguib took me there. Then on to another tomb that almost no one has heard of. The royal daughter of Nefertari, Meret Hathor. And the tomb paintings were better again? By now I could follow the way his mind worked. No. No paintings, nothing much at all, just very deep underground. I knew Naguib must have brought me there for a reason. Then I noticed the door. The effort to fight down a cough brought tears to his eyes, but he was determined to go on regardless of the pain it cost him. See, he'd been dropping hints for weeks about the ancient Egyptians as navigators on the other side of death, about sites a hundred times more spectacular than any ruined temples or pyramids, Everything I'd been seeing was just a shadow of something greater. But he was tricky. He didn't want to talk about the door. Pretended he didn't, of course. Said I might not be the right kind of person. Said it was dangerous, even for him. Leading me on. I had to just about knock the truth out of him. Even wasted with sickness, Sturman was a big man, with a rough and raw-boned sort of face. I didn't doubt that he could be physically intimidating. It was the kingdom of the dead on the other side of that door. I couldn't open it myself, though. It was a part of the wall, painted on, 
Only he could let me through, at a price. Eight hundred thousand bucks he wanted. I whistled. Yeah, too much. Crazy. But he knew he had me hooked. I could raise it. Just. It was like he'd calculated the precise amount I was worth. I couldn't beat him down. Not one buck. But wait up. You said the door was only painted on. Painted. But not ordinary painting. What do you think? You could pass through a real door to the kingdom of the dead? His laugh was a dry bark. We went back two days later, after my bank had cleared the cash through to Luxor. Burning hot day kept the tourist numbers down. We were the only ones in the tomb of Moret Hathor when he did it. Did what? He opened a hole in the door, muttered some words, and pulled out a chunk of stone. Then he took hold of my hand. His own hand was slender as a woman's, but sinewy, too. He slid our arms into the hole, up to the elbow, until we couldn't go any further. I tell you, Weber, there was a different feeling on the other side. The air was colder and tingling on my skin, emptied out like a vacuum. Then Naguib's arm twisted over mine. You know the bone-cracking thing a chiropractor does? Except that this spread out across my whole body. I was dislocated, unhinged, turned back to front. Can you imagine? No, of course you can't. Suddenly we were through, although it was more as if we stayed in the same place while the two sides of the door switched round. I looked up, and there were great unearthly stars in the sky. The sky was blacker than any night you've ever seen, and higher, too, far, far away, yet the stars blazed a hundred times more sharp and clear, and the air was absolutely still. No hint of a breeze. I don't think there ever could be a breeze in that place. Somehow... It was exactly the way I'd expected from that feeling on my arm. Next thing, I looked at Naguib and got an almighty shock. His eyes shone out like silvery lanterns. Yes, your eyes too, he said, because we are alive in the kingdom of the dead. Do not be afraid. It is dangerous to have too much feeling in this place. Sturman fell silent. Footsteps were coming up the stairs and along the landing. A moment later, Naguib stood in the doorway with a crumpled paper bag tucked under his arm. "'I have brought the prescription,' he told Sturman. "'Permit me.' He placed the bag on a cabinet by the bed, then retreated to the door. "'I apologize for the interruption.' But Sturman was coughing again, an almost silent cough that made his shoulders shake. He waved me away without another word. "'Your visits are good for him, Dr. Weber,' said Naguib as he escorted me to the top of the stairs." Not if I make him cough. That is not your doing, sir. I hope you will return tomorrow. I was caught, you see. I didn't know how to help Sturman, yet I couldn't simply turn my back on him. I told myself that his health would improve with rest and recuperation, that his health was improving in spite of the evidence before my eyes. I could hardly afford to move him to a better hotel, and in any case he didn't wish to move. I neither saved him nor abandoned him, I suppose. I just kept coming to visit him every day. And my visits were good for him. He was desperate to have a witness. You're my only record, he said on one occasion. You have to see it with my eyes. I'm the camera, and you're the film. He took it for granted I believed whatever he told me. And in a way, I did. Or I suspended disbelief, at least. The kingdom of the dead was absolutely real for him, and he made it real for me. He told me how Naguib had led him across cool, soft sand towards the great river. Strange sort of walking we did. Sort of loosen the joints, you know? 
like some chiropractor really had been working on me. On the way, they passed the Assyrian necropolis. Weber, you've never seen anything like it. A city built down instead of up. The tops of the roofs were level with the ground. The streets were channels five meters deep. We stood on a mound to survey the grid. The houses were just the stone left standing between the channels. Windows, doorposts, ornamental features, all carved into solid rock. Nobody lived there? Lived, Sturman found that amusing. They were the dead, the clamorous dead. Naguib explained it to me. Twenty-four types of death, he said, and twenty-four species of the dead. The unready dead, the shrunken dead, the turbulent dead, the nomadic dead, the willful dead, the shivering dead. I can't remember all the names. The Assyrian necropolis is a city of the clamorous dead. Naguib had to point them out before I could see them, two-dimensional shadows gliding flat to the ground or flat against the walls. You couldn't see any faces, only the shape of arms and legs. I think they were blind and feeling their way by touch. They became aware of us, though. Soon they started to approach along the streets, a whole sliding, slithering tide of them. They had no voices, but they reached out their arms in our direction. They gathered in the channel below our mound and fluttered and clutched at empty air like they were trying to attract our attention, like we were the tourists and they were trying to sell us something. I guess that was their clamoring. He shuddered when he described them, yet he was ecstatic, too. I could hear the unspoken boast behind his words. I've seen such sights as you'll never see. Terrible or beautiful, pleasing or ghastly, so long as it was spectacular, that was all he craved. Spectacular was what he got in the kingdom of the dead. Another time, he told me about the valley of the great river, a stupendous gap in the landscape many kilometers wide. Naguib followed a winding route along the valley's edge. On the other side of the river were stone constructions of unimaginable size. Mausoleums, they were. I swear the finished ones were bigger than any building in the world today, and the unfinished ones a hundred times bigger again. They had bases as wide as mountains, huge stone buttresses surrounded by ramps and scaffolding. The biggest of all was only just rising from its foundations. When I asked Naguib how long it would take to build, he said, Five thousand years already. Time has no significance in the kingdom of the dead. His eyes flicked towards the doorway, where Naguib stood listening. Sturman had overcome his earlier reluctance about speaking in the presence of his guide. And the sound, Weber, the sound, this endless murmur, low but deafening, the sound of a million hammers tapping, a million chisels chipping, a million blocks of stone being dragged up the slopes. Who? Who was doing it? The bonded dead. Another species. Yes. I never got a good look at them, though. In a mass, they glistened under the starlight like blue-black ants, same color as the stone they were working on. They were fastened together in teams, tied up with ropes, but as soon as you tried to pick them out one by one, they winked in and out of existence like they were only half there. I didn't understand, but he was already rushing ahead to the next marvel. He always talked faster when his voice was giving out. Great pillars, too. Think of the tallest skyscrapers, and these pillars were even taller, like sentries in pairs on either side of the river. Faces carved on them, terrible, cruel faces, human eyes and eyebrows, but the beaks of hawks, the jaws of dogs. They were the lords of death. What, rulers of the kingdom? 
Sturman fought for breath. Yes, the mausoleums were theirs too. Naguib wouldn't tell me their names. He turned to Naguib with an odd expression of defiance. Would you? We do not speak their names, said the Egyptian quietly. See? Sturman turned back to me. Naguib the Inscrutable. Naguib the Inscrutable, but maybe not so inscrutable in the end. In the end, he spoke out against Sturman, and I finally understood the nature of their relationship. It was the last time I saw Sturman alive, my last visit before he died. We went to cross the great river. Sturman was his usual monomaniac self, overflowing with his own experiences. We followed a staircase of giant steps to the floor of the valley, steps carved into the rock hard as iron, each one half a meter high. We had to climb down over them. At the bottom was a field of tall, pale flowers, pretty from a distance but unwholesome close up. You only had to brush against the stems and they broke off, oozing milky liquid. The petals gave off a sickly sweet smell, half like perfume and half like rotting meat. Naguib went on ahead and dug out a coracle that was hidden in the flowers. You know what a coracle is? Circular boat, woven from reeds? We carried it together to the water's edge. That was the first time I got a close look at the river, so broad and fast-flowing, but not proper water at all. It was the most amazing thing. What flowed in the great river were the shades of the dead. The newly dead, added Naguib. He had been out on the landing, but now came forward into the room. Right, the new arrivals. All the different species sliding and twining over one another, like a rushing current of black fire with flickers of yellow and white. Sometimes an arm or a leg shot up from the surface like a jet of flame. It looked too wild and choppy for any boat to cross, but the caracal was unbelievably buoyant, just bobbing on the tips of the waves. There was a rope stretched from bank to bank, and Naguib hauled us across hand over hand. He made me keep my own hands inside the boat. It was incredible, Weber. The shades of the dead went past in a blur. They were making a mournful sound as they went, a chorus of lamentation. There was an oily smell, too, and a smell of something burning. He looked at me with his what-do-you-think-of-that expression. His eyes had a feverish intensity. Incredible, I said, but take it easy. Don't exhaust yourself. I don't care about that when you've seen what I've seen. For a middle-aged man, Sturman could sound childishly petulant. Listen, we reached the other side and the bank was dry, cracked mud, a vast, flat plain of it. We left the caracal on the mud and Naguib started off towards the side of the valley. There was a V-shaped gorge running back into the rock. The way out, he said. Naguib advanced to within a couple of paces of the bed, but held his peace. The way out. I'd paid eight hundred thousand bucks for the trip of a lifetime, and he wanted to end it already. Sturman coughed and hacked and spluttered. Eight hundred thousand bucks! Naguib pursed his thin lips and waited for Sturman's indignation to subside. I made no promises. Already you had seen sights beyond your expectations. You have been saying so to Dr. Weber. But eight hundred thousand bucks for a couple of hours! It was a cheat! No way I was going to leave. You let anger into your mind, said Naguib. First greed and an uncontrollable hunger for sights. Then anger. I warned you against too much feeling in the kingdom of the dead. 
There was more to see. Sturman's tone changed to a kind of querulous appeal. I know there was. We only saw a few kilometers of the whole valley. Admit it. Naguib refused to give a direct answer. My ancestors made maps, he said. Precious maps handed down from generation to generation. There are roots, and there are limits. You stepped beyond the limits. I only walked a different way. Sturman switched his appeal to me. I headed back upstream, to the pillars and the mausoleums. Backwards, backwards. Naguib shook his head. No one goes backwards in the kingdom of the dead. I called out to you, didn't I? I never heard you. You did, because you shouted a reply, a loud, angry voice, very foolish. A long silence followed. The only sound was the painful rasp of Sturman's breathing. What happened? I asked at last. Footsteps, said Sturman. One of the lords of death, said Naguib. Boom, 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 like thunder, stamping towards us. I saw him. There was nothing to see, Mr. Sturman. You heard, but didn't see. I saw him, I tell you. It was one of those pillars come to life, bird beak and dog jaws way up in the sky. How did he move? Where did he step? I don't know. Coming towards me. Coming to crush us. No. You had your arms over your head as you ran. It was only your imagination. Only your terror. Yeah, I was afraid. Who wouldn't be? Except you, because you have iced water in your veins. But not terror. Don't say that. The third feeling you let into your mind. Helpless, unreasoning terror. The strongest feeling of all. Stop it! Stop trying to put the fault on me! It was the damn dust that did it! Nothing to do with feelings! The damn dust in the damned stone box! You should have warned me about that! What stone box? I asked. What dust? Since Sturman was reluctant to answer, Naguib spoke up. A tomb, he means, sir. A stone tomb. It was the only shelter on the whole plain! Sturman burst out and was immediately overwhelmed by an explosion of coughing. My imagination was having difficulty with this. I'd pictured an empty plain of cracked mud, and now there was a stone tomb in the middle of it. A single tomb? Even for the kingdom of the dead, it seemed too much like a dream. Naguib turned to me. He ran for the tomb and dived straight into it. The stone cap was half fallen away at the top, so he had space to wriggle in. His terror was stronger than anything I could do. Shut up! Sturman sat up, gasping. Shut up about terror! Shut up about it! He went into a truly alarming paroxysm, coughing and clutching at his throat as though choking. His eyes bulged out and his cheeks sucked in. I raised his shoulders from the bed and whacked him between the shoulder blades. Naguib watched and never moved a muscle. After a while, the fit passed. Sturman fell back and rolled over onto his side, face gray, breath wheezing in and out of his throat. I'll call an ambulance and take you to the hospital, I said. No ambulances, he husked. Did he mean there were no ambulances in Cairo, or that he didn't want one? A taxi, then. Do you think you can travel by taxi? No taxis. He's saying he does not want treatment in a hospital, Naguib interpreted. Why would he? 
The Egyptian's impassive manner was starting to get under my skin. Okay, I'll find another doctor, I told Sturman. A competent one this time. There has to be an infection in your lungs. Sturman's wasted hand reached out from under the sheet and latched onto my wrist. He pulled me closer so that he could speak in the very faintest of whispers. I thought I'd be safe in that stone box, but there was a layer of dust at the bottom, so dry and fine like ground-up chalk, like powdered bone. I couldn't help stirring it up in the darkness. I couldn't help inhaling it. I forgot for a moment that all of this was supposed to have happened in some other world. Same as coal miners and asbestos workers, then. It's in your lungs. No, my throat. It grinds and grinds. It scrapes and scratches. I let it in and I can't get it out, like swallowing razor blades drier than dry. Even his voice was dry, even his breath in my ear. I freed my wrist, jumped up, and headed for the door. Don't worry, I'll find a doctor for you. I did find a doctor, a more professional one than the first, more compassionate, too, because he was willing to come at once to Sturman's hotel. I must have sounded desperate, but it was already too late. When we arrived, Sturman lay covered over with his own bedsheet. My first reaction was to blame Naguib. He can't have died from a cough, not like that, not in half an hour. Dr. Hurghada performed a thorough examination and announced that Sturman hadn't died from a cough, but from a massive blockage of blood vessels in the arteries to the brain. A stroke, in other words. Naguib had to translate everything for my benefit, since Dr. Hurghada spoke only Arabic. Of course, I insisted on a further examination for other causes. According to Dr. Herghada, there were no signs of infection in Sturman's throat or chest. Had he been asthmatic? I didn't know, and Naguib wasn't sure, but a search of his belongings revealed no medications. Dr. Herghada looked thoughtful. A fear of being unable to breathe could trigger a panic attack, and a panic attack can be a trigger for a stroke. In Naguib's translation, the explanation came across as very hypothetical, hedged with a great many maybes and possiblies. I stayed on after the doctor had left. There were funeral arrangements to be made, and I couldn't just leave them to Naguib. Perhaps my first step should be to contact the Australian embassy. Naguib pulled the sheet back up over Sturman's face. What do you believe, Dr. Weber? he asked me suddenly. What, about the stroke? About the kingdom of the dead, sir. Does it exist, in your opinion? I didn't like being put on the spot. To tell the truth, I'd never yet settled the matter in my mind. It had existed for Sturman. That was all I knew for certain. The Lords of Death and the Great River, he went on, the tomb standing all by itself in the middle of a plain. Can you believe it? I shrugged. If he was playing devil's advocate, I didn't understand his game. It's even stranger than you think, sir, you see. I had to go to the tomb and pull Mr. Sturman out. He never saw it himself, and I never told him. There was an inscription carved on the side of the tomb. With middle finger extended, he traced shapes on the sheet next to the body. What's that, hieroglyphics? No, sir, much older. The ancient language of the dead. Do you know what it spells, sir? The way he kept saying, sir, wasn't so much obsequious as subtly insulting. I felt he was toying with me. Tell me. It was his name, sir. It said Gordon Sturman. That was his tomb, you see. 
Impossible. Impossible, yes, indeed. But time has no significance in the kingdom of the dead, sir. Mr. Sturman was always going to die, as we know we all must die. The only difference is whether or not you let it into your mind. His thin-lipped smile held a hundred insinuations. In spite of his words, I had the momentary impression that he was tempting me to become another tourist in the kingdom of the dead. I suppose it makes a certain sort of sense that the road through the land of the dead is one way. I love the way Richard tells this story. I felt as though I was well and truly there. So, that brings to a close our triple header. From tall tale to virtual murder to traveling through the land of the dead, I'd say we covered quite a bit of ground this episode. Please remember that Farfetch Fables operates under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivative 3.0 license, which means you can download the content and share it all you like, but don't change it or sell it, and be sure to give credit where credit is due. All other copyright remains that of the authors. And if you like what you hear at Farfetch Fables, please consider making a donation to the District of Wonders. The button is on the website. If you'd like to share your thoughts on this or any of our stories, you can leave your comments on the Triple F website as well. And with that, don't forget to double-check your calendar. Take heed that virtual murder may still be murder, and remember that when traveling through the land of the dead, don't turn back or you're likely to find your own final resting place. Until next time, bye now. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 